This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Friends, we come to God's word this morning to celebrate, to read of the great triumphal entry of our Savior, the time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for Passover. The Christian church calls it the great triumphal entry, and we get to celebrate that today in a very non-triumphalistic time. Uh, some pastor friends um, in Tulsa and I were passing back and forth articles this week, and one of the articles that we read together was an article from a well-known business school and it was entitled, that, that Discomfort That You Feel Is Grief. And the article went on to interview a man named David Kessler, who's the world's foremost expert in grief. And he talked about a kind of grief called anticipatory grief. It's the kind of grief that you feel whenever you get a dire um, prognosis, when you know that someone close to you is soon to die. It's the kind of prognosis or the kind of grief that you feel when you know that the future is uncertain, that something is inevitably going to happen that you do not know nor can you control. And this is called anticipatory grief. And I don't know about you, but I feel some of that this week. Don't you? Like you anticipate these next two weeks are going to be tough. It's going to be a hard time to watch the news, even if we in Oklahoma are shielded by time of some of the worst days ahead of, uh, for us for the virus. You know, um, the stages of grief are, are um, very famous because of a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? The first is denial. Like we deny that this coronavirus is happening. It's not true. We're going to go on with our life. And the second stage is, um, is anger. Or we're angry about it. Like, this can't be happening. Why is this happening right now? Well, for those of you who are seniors in college or seniors in high school, and, or those of you who are waiting for prom, I mean, all the great things about your senior year have been canceled. It's, it's hard. After that, you begin to bargain. The third stage of grief, you begin to say, okay, if I shelter in place for two weeks, okay, 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 if I shelter in place until the end of April, Okay, okay, okay. If I shelter in place for two months, then, then things are going to return to normal. You begin to bargain. And after you bargain, then you begin to settle into a kind of acceptance. Like this, this is the new normal. And we are going to have to have like a really long passing to the peace when we have worship again together in person because we are so longing to see each other. But David Kessler adds a sixth stage to grief. He asked the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Family Foundation if he could add a sixth stage. And the sixth stage that he added was meaning. That we must find in our grief a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning in it. And, and we're all struggling for that right now. At least I am. And I'm sure that you are too. And when you come to this great passage of Jesus entering Jerusalem at Passover, 
you have the opposite of anticipatory grief. You have for these people who are waving palm branches, you have a kind of anticipatory glory. Because when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they waved the palm branches that were reserved to celebrate the crowning victory of one nation over another, the crowning victory of a people, it was like the modern-day ticker tape parade. They were, they were celebrating. This is amazing. And they were anticipating that Jesus, who was coming into Jerusalem, albeit in a very strange way, not on a war horse but on a donkey, was going to lead them to political independence. And like Caiaphas later in John, what they said and thought about Jesus leading them to independence was prescient, and they spoke more truly than they really understood because Jesus wasn't leading them to political independence. He was leading them into spiritual independence from sin, which plagued them, and a spiritual dependence upon the only one who could possibly redeem them from their deepest pathology. So this morning in the passage, John asks for us three very important questions. In this paradox of Jesus striding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he asks, what is it that makes a true king? What makes a true king? How does it appear in Jesus? And then how can it appear in us? So those are the three points. What makes a true king? How, can it, how does it appear in Jesus? And then how can it appear in us in these days? And children, if you're listening, would you please remember these three words and find them in the sermon? The first phrase is true king. The second is Toyota Prius, and the third is the voice. True king, Toyota Prius, and the voice. So first, what makes a true king? It's not a political process. What makes a true king? It's not that somebody has the title of president or of leader or of CEO. What makes a true king, a true leader? Think back about all of the people that you can think of in your mind who are true kings. Think of all the Marvel and DC comic movies. Think about Black Panther. Think about the Lord of the Rings. Think about um, um, Thorn of Oakenshield or Aragon or Elrond. Think about uh, in history. Think about Henry the Henry the Fifth or King George the Sixth or or Elizabeth, who is going to stand later today and give a speech to her countrymen from Buckingham Palace in London. Think about the great kings of literature. Think about uh, King Arthur or Lancelot. What is it that makes those kings so noble? And what makes those kings so noble is that you have the harmony, the unity, the bringing together of opposites. You have the bringing together of characteristics that otherwise wouldn't seem to fit but in these leaders, they fit. So you think about somebody like, um, like, like King Arthur, right? Who's somebody who was, was valiant and strong in battle and returns home to have compassion on his people. Or Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, who was mighty in battle, but yet tender, wise. These, these seemingly incongruous qualities or characteristics are pulled together in any noble leader or king. Where does it come from? Where does this, like, this appetite for us to like, long for both might and power, mighty in battle, and also tenderness and presence, 
Where does that come from? It comes from a longing in ourselves for our own true king. The people of Jerusalem in Jesus' day longed for Jesus, who was performing miracles, who was able to care for the sick. They were looking for him to rise up and then go to battle with Rome. They were waiting for him to to bring these opposites together. They they thought he could possibly deliver us from our political oppression and set us us truly free. Um, in, In our own experience, we crave this kind of leadership, don't you? Think about the way that we have appetizers, the way that we, the, the way we eat things. And sometimes an appetizer for a starving man is worse than, the real, than, than having food because appetizers just awaken in us our hunger pains. And for us, especially now, we long for control. We long for somebody to rise up and put an end to it. We long for somebody to stand up and lead. We long for somebody to take us and be a faithful, non-anxious presence in our midst to say it's going to be okay if you follow me. We long for that. The desire for us to have a true king, to bring these apparent opposite characteristics, speaks to something deep in our human heart because no matter where you are or what you happen to believe or if you're a believer listening to this or you're still considering the things of God, you long for it. And the presence of that longing for there to be a true king is evidence of the fact that it is a hope that is too good to not be true. And it is true. So the presence of of these opposite characteristics are what make a true king beautiful, what make a king noble, not just a mere king, but a noble king, somebody we want to follow. And for, for most of you, like me, we're constantly going after things that are just appetizers, that just awaken our hunger for a true king, like money or power or sex or performance or control or good family or whatever, whatever it is, these good things become over-desires and they begin to consume us. They become a pathogen that begins to eat us from the inside. So how does Jesus show us that he's the true king? How do these apparent opposites come together in Jesus? How does the true nobility that we long for come together in Christ? Well, qualities that seem otherwise incompatible come together in Jesus, and you see this so clearly in the triumphal entry. Did you hear what Brad Moses read earlier? Did you hear how Jesus walks? He comes into Jerusalem, and he's not walking, but he's riding. What's he riding on? The king of the universe, the son of God, is riding not on a war horse, but he's riding on a humble donkey. They're waving palm branches, which are symbols of celebration of victory over their enemies. And people undoubtedly thought Jesus was about to lead them into political victory. And here he is, five days later, leading them into a victory that just defied their imaginations. These people, when they set their hearts on the Lord, they cried out, Hosanna, which literally means save us. It means please help us. It's a way of crying out, give us victory. Save us, O God. Draw near to us. You see in Psalm 118, 25, the psalmist says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That's, that's Hosanna. They're crying out Hosannas. Or you see in Zechariah 9, 9, you, you, see, the, you see as um, the Argawals read earlier for us in the service, you see the, the Son of God comes into a city on a colt, 
on the foal of a donkey, and he is the one who's going to bring deliverance to his people. Years ago, in what is arguably the most beautiful sermon that Jonathan Edwards ever wrote and preached, it's on Revelation chapter 5, Jonathan Edwards read the passage where, you may know it, when, when John is having his vision of heaven, and he says, I, uh, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looks back, he says in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 5, and he doesn't see a lion, but he sees the lamb. And Edward says that it is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies that come together in Jesus. The admirable conjunctions of diverse excellencies. Try using that in a sentence this week. And Edwards goes on and says, Jesus is the lion and he's the lamb. He's the king and he's the suffering servant. He is infinite in holiness, but also infinite in condescension. He has the deepest reverence toward God, and yet he is equal with God. He's infinite in majesty, yet he has a transcendent kind of meekness. He's infinite worthy and good, and yet he has the greatest patience and suffering under evil. He has an exceeding spirit of obedience, with, yet with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. He is absolutely sovereign, Edward says, and yet he is perfect, perfect in his resignation. He is self-sufficient, and he is entirely reliant on his Father. Isn't that beautiful? Admirable conjunctions of diverse excellencies. They come together in Christ. The medicine that we need for our deepest pathologies is not um, a cure to the coronavirus, although we pray for that very soon. It's not inoculation because our pathologies are too deep. Psalm 95 says that when the Lord comes, the forest, the trees of the forest will clap their hands. They will clap. Isaiah 55 says the mountains and the hills will sing for joy. You know, it reminds me of that Prius commercial. Have you seen that Prius commercial? That one where the, the car is going through. There you go. You see it? And all of a sudden things bloom after the car drives by. I mean, creation just shouts for praise. That's the picture of the Lord coming in. Things bloom in his presence. Whenever he arrives, things bloom. May a thousand flowers bloom. There's an old hymn that says, The king shall come when morning dawns, and might and beauty brings. Opposites coming together. Hail Christ our Lord, thy people pray. Come quickly, king of kings. Uh, over... Um, the shelter in place, Lauren and I decided that we would introduce our older children to that amazing, great American show, The Office. So we decided that we would play The Office. And as we're watching The Office, you know, it becomes readily apparent that we're all kind of under an incompetent management, right? <laughs> I mean, we're all incompetent managers. And our problem isn't Michael Scott out there. Our problem is our incompetence in here. That no matter our performance, no matter how much must we muster up to try to control things right now, we are not able to control things. And it reminds me 
of, um, a, um, of a book that was written many, many years ago in 1947 by a French man named Albert Camus, Albert Camus. And he wrote a book called The Plague, and he was a nihilist. And Camus was trying to explore with literature what would humanity do in the setting of a major plague. And so this book takes place in Iran, French Algeria, Oran, O-R-A-N, not Iran, Oran, French Algeria. And there's this very reflective, beautiful part of the book that I want uh, to read for you. It says, in this respect, our townsfolk were like everybody else, wrapped up in themselves. In the context of this book, it is rats who are carrying a, a viral disease that is taking, that, that's taking out people in this French city. In this respect, our townsfolk were like everybody else, wrapped up in themselves. In other words, they were humanists. They disbelieved in pestilences. A pestilence isn't a thing made to man's measure. Therefore, we tell ourselves that pestilence is a mere boogie of the mind, a bad dream that will pass away. But it doesn't pass away. And the humanists, first of all, are those men who passed away because they haven't taken their precautions. We go from one bad dream to another. Our townsfolk were not more to blame than others. They forgot to be modest, that was all, and thought that everything still was possible for them, which presupposed that pestilences were impossible. They went on doing business, arranged for journeys, and formed views. How should they have given a thought to anything like plague, which rules out any future, cancels journeys, silences the exchange of views? They fancy themselves free. And no one will ever be free so long as there are pestilences. No one will be free so long as there are pestilences, things outside of our control. The greatest pestilence, the greatest pathology, friends, as scary as COVID is out there, the greatest pestilence is the pathology in here. Because no matter how creative we can get, we can't fast forward the clock or turn it back. We are creatures under a divine creator who is good and who is sovereign and who loves us. It's only when we can admit that there are pestilences of the heart that we can truly be free. It's only when we can admit that our longing to bring seeming opposites together will allow us to actually look to Jesus as our true king, the one who could possibly deliver us, and cry out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so would you consider, would you consider that the pestilence that you're experiencing, both on the outside, but also the pestilence of sin that you are experiencing and that you know on the inside, can only be solved not by your performance, not by your ingenuity, not by your creativity, but by one who comes to us from the outside. Economists tell us that recessions are the mother of an invention for any society struggling to make ends meet at a time when the economy is down. And so true in the history of the church have, have plagues and has sickness been the mother of invention for the church. And no more true is that today than ever. So if we see the true king, characteristics of the true noble king are incompatible opposites that come together. And that Jesus, in Jesus, is this admirable conjunction of excellencies that come together in him. 
How, therefore, does it appear in us? Can it? Can, can we bring seeming opposites together? Peace admits plagues. Joy admits sorrow and suffering. Life admits death. Can we bring those together as his people? And the answer is yes. But it takes something from outside of us. It takes the presence of our Savior. Not our ingenuity, but it takes our faith. And as we experience this anticipatory grief, it is our job as his church to begin to lean into our identities and our safety that we have only in Christ, the one who brings together what seems to be incompatible opposites. He brings together in himself life through his death on the cross, joy amidst his suffering servanthood, purpose against what seemed to the Jewish people many years ago to be utterly pointless, the death of yet another at the hands of the Romans. One of the case studies um, that you see for this are the plagues in church history. There have been 10 recorded pandemics since the 1700s, but I want to go further back than that and talk about the way the early church handled some of these plagues in their history. The early church has established social goods that go unnoticed and taken for granted these days. Um, did you know that uh, hospitals, for example, were they a Roman creation? No, they, they were not. They were a Christian creation. You know, in Rome, back in the day when Jesus was alive, scholars say that it was perhaps back in ancient Rome that people enjoyed some of the greatest privileges and wealth and opportunities economically that went unmatched until the latter part of the 19th and 20th century. They had roads to connect cities. Their kingdom was expanding. They had the establishment of democracy. They laid the groundwork for our modern-day democracy in the U.S. They had amazing privilege. But you know what they did with their sick? They often left them to die. Do you know what they did with their children? If their children were born with special needs or if their children were born and they were ill, they would often, often leave them to the elements. Because the Romans believed that um, their god of medicine, Asclepios, was able to heal them, but they would need to abandon them to him in order for him to heal them. And so people would bring their sick to Asclepios' um, uh, uh, altar, to his temple, and they would sleep there. The ill would come by the hundreds and seek the help of Asclepius. And it was Christians who noticed this in the early Roman Empire, and they said, we cannot, we cannot abandon people who are ill to the elements. And it was the Christians who first stepped in. And the Christians who created things called Xenodokia, Xenophobia is the fear of the stranger. Xenodokia is a place of safe harbor for the stranger. They created these Xenodokia, which means that they would bring people in who needed a place to stay, and they would, they would care for them, irrespective of their economic sta uh, status, irrespective of their faith. And, and these Xenodokia began to become places where lepers would come. And later on, they had not only Xenodokia, but they had... Uh, Leprosarias, which were places where lepers would be housed, and they would care for them by the dozens. And they would minister to them. When Rome would abandon them, the Christians would step in, and they would minister to them. And, and these Xenodokia later became hospitals. And it was um, 
in, you know, under the Cyprian plague, and it was under, um, uh, which happened in the third century, that these hospitals began to become more and more popularized. And when Caesar um, um, converted, um, Constantine converted to Christianity in 312, these hospitals spread like wildfire because it were the Christians who were actually caring for the people who were sick because Rome had no category for how to care for the ill. And whenever later in Julian came to power, Julian is the one who came to power in 361. He, he very famously, very famously said, it is disgraceful that when no Jew is ever, ever has to beg and impious Galileans that are Christians, they support not only their own poor, but they support ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And by the time that Benedict founded Monte Cassino, not the one in Tulsa, the one at Cassino in Italy, when he founded Monte Cassino, Monte Cassino began to become a pattern for what a modern hospital would look like. So here's the deal. We want to follow a true noble king where seeming opposites come together and power. And we see that in Christ where all of these things come together beautifully. He is both strong and mighty, yet he's tender with us. He is a God who hates injustice, and yet he lays his life down so that we might be free. In Jesus, all these things come together. And John tells us a couple chapters later in John 14, verse 16, and in 14, verse 26, that I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, John says. But I'm going to give you another helper. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to come and he's going to empower you to live out these same qualities for the culture and place in which you're living. And so the call for us today, Trinity, is what are we going to do? How are we going to extend God's grace? How are we going to bring seeming opposites together? When people are fearful, how do we bring a sense of calm and faith into the presence of our neighbors and of the world together? And I can't answer that question for you because I don't have your gifts. But you have gifts. And we can't minister to people in the same way that our church, the church, has ministered to people in history because we know that physical presence around people who are sick right now is actually a liability. So we have no playbook. We can't follow the old script of how our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers before us cared for the ill during this time. We have to step into the moment in time for our church and say, how can we be creative in a new way? So let me challenge you to get with a band of brothers or a band of sisters, your community group, maybe it's your family, and to pray, Lord, how can we uniquely contribute to the health of the stranger and the healing of the stranger? For some of us, it's going to mean that we're going to start wearing masks almost everywhere we go. That could be one practical way. And when you put that mask on, you remind yourself that I'm going to be a faithful presence. I'm going to be a hand of non-anxious presence and of love to people in the humble task of wearing a mask. Maybe it's wearing the mask that we imitate Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem. Humble. Maybe it's that we call on our neighbors uh, who are on our block. Maybe it's that we form new organizations that are able to stand in the gap. Maybe it's that we help people find financial aid. Whatever it is, Lord, friends, would you rise up and would you take it? Lord, did you help us as a church to stand into this space as those who follow a noble king, 
as those who see that nobility in the person of Jesus. And he only can fill our longing for a true king because he is the true king. And may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in light of our identities in Christ. One more illustration, then I'll close. Have you ever seen The Voice? You know, the TV show where we sing, and you know, I've talked about this before in, in a sermon, but you know how they have the chairs turned backwards. And have you ever noticed the difference in the performers between their first performance and their second? The second performance, they always sing with a kind of abandon and a kind of confidence that's lacking in the first. Why? It's because in the first performance, they're facing four chairs and the judge's backs are to the performer. It's a blind audition. And you can hear the shaking of their voices, just begging for one of those judges to turn their chairs around and to show them their favor. But in the second performance that you see, they always are able to hit the notes. They're always able to sing with a kind of reckless abandon. Why? Because they have the acceptance of the judges. And we as Christians, friends, we don't live and move and have our being because we're trying to prove to God that we're worthy. We go out and use our gifts in ways that glorify him because he's turned his chair around to us. And he says, I accept you. Sing. Sing your heart out. Be my hands and feet in the world in creative ways with all the liabilities of our day. Can we do that together? We have a noble king in the person of Jesus. And we are called to carry that nobility into every square inch of our sphere of influence. There's a part in the Lord of the Rings, the very uh, beginning, where Gandalf is explaining the history of the ring to Frodo. And Gandalf says this, J.R.R. Tolkien writes, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. And so do I, Gandalf replies. And so do all who live to see such time. But that is not for them to decide. And Gandalf says, and we have to decide what to do with the time that's given to us. So what will it be? Trinity. Let's extend the nobility of our king into our city, into our world, into our family, because we have a true and noble king who rides for us, who's accepted us, who's called us no longer orphans, but he's called us sons and he's called us daughters. And let us live in that confidence. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to follow Jesus, who is our true and noble king. He is the king for whom we so ardently long. And Lord, would you remind us that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who are listening who are not yet believers, Father, would you help them to see that their pathology runs deeper? And that the only medicine for their soul is the bringing together of opposites, infinite holiness, and also infinite forgiveness. And we see the conjoining of those opposites on the cross where Jesus himself, the Son of God, died as a Roman 
criminal. So, Father, as an expression of what you are doing in us, Lord, may we use our gifts to glorify and honor you. And would you help us now as we give of our tithes and offerings in ways that also honor you. Would you help us to continue to make the church strong. And so bless these tithes and offerings that we have the opportunity to give now online. And we pray all these things together as your people. And all of God's people said together, amen. And amen. Trinity family, this morning as we close in worship, we're going to sing.